Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. I'm senior producer Gregory Haddock, and today we have another Wildlands member, guest producer of today's episode, Janie Fugate. How are you doing, Janie? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Greg. It's summertime. People go to the beach around summertime as often as possible. And what's one of the few things they love to see more than anything? A dolphin sighting, right? You had a chance today for this episode to speak with one of the foremost experts in this field, somebody who's got decades and decades of experience. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your guest? Yeah, I had the honor to speak with Dr. Randall Wells from the Sarasota Dolphin Research Program, which is based in Sarasota Bay, Florida. It's part of the Moat Marine Laboratory. And he actually started this study in 1970, and it's now become the longest running dolphin research project in the world. So he's been working on this project for 50 years and answering just a host of conservation questions about dolphins, their natural history, their ecology. And so we covered we covered a lot. And like you said, so many people go to the beach hoping to see a dolphin and people know about a little bit about their how they whistle for language and other things like that. But there's really, as I learned, just layers and layers of research that are currently being conducted around this animal. Exactly. Like you said, 1970, right? The 50th anniversary of one of the oldest dolphin research programs. Dr. Wells started this or started in the beginning of this when he was still green behind the ears. I mean, this is his entire life's work. When you had this interview, before we get into it, what, what's the one thing that really struck you? What's the one thing you want people to, to listen for as, as we listen to, um, to Dr. Wells? His research, I think, really serves as a case study for how important long-running conservation uh, research is. Yeah, really what I took away is just a reinforcement of the importance of investing in long-running studies around wildlife and the intersection of wildlife and human populations in specific locations. Fantastic. Let's jump right into it. It's really nice to meet you over the phone. Dr. Wells, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. So you and a colleague launched what would become the longest running dolphin research program in the world. You launched that in 1970. Can you tell me a little bit about the earlier days of your project and the original question that you were trying to answer? Sure. Um, back in 1970, there was interest in having dolphins work with divers. And there were undersea habitats that were being operated by the U.S. Navy. And they were using dolphins to carry tools and messages back and forth. And they wanted to extend that to trying to understand if dolphins could be used to protect divers from sharks. And so the Office of Naval Research funded a project at Moat Marine Laboratory in Sarasota, Florida, to look at the behavioral interactions of sharks and dolphins. A fellow named Blair Irvine came from California to head up that project, and he was able to bring me on board as a research assistant while I was in high school there. He had a strong interest in what went on with wild dolphins as well. And so in our spare time away from the project, looking at the shark dolphin behaviors, we went out and put tags on dolphins in local Sarasota Bay waters to learn something about their movement patterns. Up to that time, no one had ever done a systematic study of the movements of dolphins in coastal waters. 
We had no idea whether the dolphins that were seen one day would be there a week later or a month later, or whether they would range freely around the Gulf of Mexico. So this was a, just a pilot study to try to get a hint of what the animals might be doing. We certainly had no idea at the beginning that we were setting out on something that would become a, a career, at least for me. Right. I mean, truly, it's become your life's work. And so when you started, no one knew that dolphins resided in one place for generations and generations. Is that true? That's true. And one of the things that has made everything else we've done since that time possible is the discovery that the dolphins, at least in parts of the coastline, have long-term residency. Uh, these animals are here, as you indicated, they're here generation after generation, decade after decade. And that knowledge that we can go out and find identifiable individuals with known backgrounds on a predictable basis established the basis for a lot of other research that's gone on since that time. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. I didn't realize that dolphins lived into their 60s in the wild. So I guess in that sense, maybe there's some dolphins that you started tagging in the 70s that you're still seeing around, right? There are still a few individuals um, that are here from when we were first working with them in the 70s. And now we have their calves and their grand calves and their great grand calves and their great great grand calves. We can have as many as six concurrent, or pardon me, five concurrent generations at, in the area. And we have documented six generations overall. Wow. That seems really unique in the animal kingdom and in the world of conservation science to be able to have that kind of longevity, right? It just becomes more fascinating as time goes on. And we come to appreciate what these animals have to go through to live in the coastal waters of the U.S. in places where there are a lot of human activities. We have the opportunity to follow these animals throughout their lives. We work with them from the time they're born, doing observations and monitoring their health and, and environmental contaminant loads. And then we work closely with Moat Marine Laboratory that operates a stranding investigations program. And they recover carcasses of dolphins from the beach and try to learn what brings about their demise. So between the, the two operations, we bookend the lives of these animals and, and try to understand especially what impacts their lives from a human perspective. Right. And so what are some of the findings that your lab has uncovered in the last 50 years with these animals? Well, the most important thing has been the long-term residency. We certainly had no idea mm -hmm. when we started that they were going to be here, but having documented that residency, it has allowed the federal management agencies that are tasked with protecting these animals, it's given them a basis for protecting them that's based on geography. They can understand better what certain groupings that they call stocks are exposed to based on where these animals spend their time. And for us, it's allowed us to be able to learn about the individuals and monitor them through time and learn about their social structure, to learn about their communication patterns, their health, their environmental contaminant loads, how they interact with humans, and the factors that go into reproductive success for these animals. You mentioned looking at human impacts on the health of these po dolphin populations. Uh, when you started, I imagine the Sarasota Bay, Florida probably looks pretty different than it does now and maybe people's perceptions around conservation and how animals and humans can live side by side in one place has probably changed over time. Absolutely. 
when I moved here in 1969 and going into 1970, we had about a quarter the number of people living in the Sarasota area and about a quarter the number of boats. Now there's over 40,000 boats registered in the counties that make up the home range of the Sarasota Dolphin community. 40,000 boats? And certainly they're not all out on the water at the same time, but it's a pretty urbanized area for these animals. Yeah. We've documented that at any given time, there is a powerboat passing within 100 meters of every individual in the bay once every six minutes. And in some places where boat activity is more concentrated, it's once every two minutes. So these, these animals are very acoustically oriented. They live in an estuary that's highly productive, but that high level of productivity also means that the waters are pretty murky, so they have to rely on sound. And when they have sound introduced into the water in the form of noise from boat engines, it can be disruptive to them and dangerous to them as well. So we understand that about 25% of the mortalities of Sarasota dolphins are human related. And those causes of mortality include boat strikes, although nowhere near the level that we see for manatees. But boat strikes are one aspect of it. Entanglement in fishing gear is the largest human-related source of mortality for these animals. And so we monitor these aspects and how they change over time and impacting these animals. And then we work with the stakeholders locally. We engage in a lot of interactions with the local folks that are out on the water environmental tour groups, the uh, fishing charter people, the boat rental companies, and others who are using the waters frequently. We try to let them know about these animals, about the lives of these animals. And in particular, we try to stress the fact that these animals are their neighbors. And in many cases, they've been around in these waters longer than the people have, generation after generation. And we try to come up with ways that we can all share the waters to get out of the local environment while we want to. Do you find that people are receptive to that? I think, I think the idea of human beings sharing the world with wildlife is just becoming, people are starting to understand and talk about that more maybe than they have in, in the last hundred years or so. You know, I, I would have to agree. I think people have become much more aware of the fact that they are sharing the world and that there are other animals out there and other um, life forms that need particular habitats in order to survive. And so from the perspective of our dolphins, as we learn more about them living here generation after generation, and when we can identify the dramas that have gone on within particular lineages, people can relate to them. We recognize them as individuals. We use markings on their dorsal fins, basically as fingerprints to tell them apart. And in this way, we've been able to compile more than 1,500 sightings of some individuals over more than four decades. So I want to uh, just back up a little bit to kind of back to the research and back to just the dolphins themselves. I mean, everyone loves dolphins, I think, at least like the idea of them um, just because of how charismatic they are, but can you talk about why that is? Yeah, well, these animals still have a lot to show us. They've been on the face of the earth a lot longer than humans have been. They've figured out a number of solutions for making a living in an environment that would be very hostile to us, and yet adjoins the areas where we live. So we, we talk about these animals living in our backyard, but in reality, we kind of live in their backyard. 
the ways that they are able to deal with an environment that uh, is one where they can't see very much, the idea that they have such a reliance on acoustics is very foreign to us, but it makes it all possible for them. The dolphins call to one another by calling the name of the other one, and they keep track of one another by producing their own whistles as they're going through these murky waters so they can keep track of where they are at any given time. And so understanding the, how important the sounds are to them in terms of keeping their social structure intact and being able to respond to threats that are, are posed to them is one aspect of it. Right, so all of that really goes, is making me think about your earlier point on the presence of motorized boats and how just, it seems amazing that they can navigate at all and hunt at all in the bay with so many um, boats interrupting their sounds. But it does make it more of a challenge for them. When you think about it, a century ago, there were no power boats out on the bay, or very few. And now you have thousands of them that they have to face all the time. And we do see behavioral responses. We find that the dolphins stop whistling when the boats get within about 300 meters of, of them. And as they get within 100 meters, the dolphins will make longer dives, they'll form tighter groups. They're changing their behavior and, and each of those, these behavioral changes help to protect them from being struck by boats, but they come with an energetic cost. And what we don't understand is what those energetic costs are in terms of how it affects their uh, long-term survivorship. The fact that there's been so much change in the environment since 1970, and yet they're still here, is testimony to their resiliency and their ability to make changes. In fact, it's been surprising to us that we don't see dolphin populations moving out of an area. We've come to term that idea that these animals live in an ecological cul-de-sac, that no matter how bad things get within an area, they won't leave. For example, we have severe red tides that come through the area. These are harmful right. algal blooms that kill fish by the millions and can also kill dolphins, manatees, birds, and can be irritating for humans as well. And even in spite of severe harmful algal blooms, severe red tides coming through the area, the dolphins stay. In Barataria Bay, Louisiana, that was hard hit by the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, the dolphins stayed up there even during the oil spill. There were dolphins present, and they showed a high degree of residency over the years following that oil spill. These animals live in these neighborhoods, and these neighborhoods are extremely important to them. And the health assessment work that we've done with other organizations over the, the decades since the Deepwater Horizon have shown that there are chronic health issues that um, are manifested in terms of lung condition, especially for these animals. They are very susceptible to lung issues. And also in terms of reproduction, their reproductive rates have never recovered to what we would expect from unoiled populations of dolphins. In Sarasota, we've been able to examine what goes on during a variety of red tides, and what we've learned is that no two red tides are alike. They differ in terms of the, their severity, they differ in terms of how they're spread over the area and how long they last. We had a, another severe red tide of shorter duration from the summer of 2018 to January of 2019, and we did not see the same, same thing. We saw a dramatic decline. 88% of the dolphin crayfish died as, or left as a result of the red tide. 
but we didn't see the same interest in recreational fishing gear that we'd seen before. But we did see more of our dolphins die from direct exposure to the red tide toxins this time. The red tide came in and it burned hotter. The cell counts were higher um, than they had been in 2005, 2006. And so we lost more of our animals to the red tide itself rather than to the ecological effects. So it's, it's a different situation each time. And it's only through long-term study that you can really make these kinds of distinctions. I think one of the things that really stands out to me in that first part, Janie, is just how impacted dolphins are by human activities. What is it, 25% of mortalities in, in the dolphin population are human-related. 5% have scars from being hit by boats. And the tens of thousands of boats that are out there, you know, just on the water all the time while they're trying to, you know, communicate with other dolphins. There's all this other extraneous noises. Uh, what, what did you make out of that? Yeah, that was really impressive to me, too. He gave a lot of statistics that really painted the picture of just how many pressures these dolphins are um, facing and living with on a daily basis just by by living in close proximity with humans. And I think it's also really interesting to think about just how much that's changed in the last 50 years, which is actually one dolphin's lifetime. So in 1970, there were nowhere near as many motorized boats in the water as as he says there are now in 2020 so just that I think really put it in perspective for me and then you know we'll also talk about climate change and how not only are dolphins facing just an ever-changing environment from human activity but also from climate change warming temperatures and the kind of host of environmental related impacts caused by that. Right. Yeah. And I guess the impression I get is the 25% he talks about, the mortality rate, is really about direct human interference or direct human-caused mortality, where if we were to try to incorporate what effects climate change has, which, as I think most scientists would agree, is predominantly caused by humans, I mean, we're talking about a, a much higher number than that. I think to your point, his research gives, um, on the one hand, and a really amazing look at how dolphins and humans are living side by side and how these dolphins, specifically in Sarasota Bay, have adapted. But as Dr. Wells will talk about, there's a limit to every species' ability to adapt and a limit to every species' resiliency in the face of a changing environment. Um, and so I think that that just really will reinforce how important conservation science and research is in ensuring that these animals are living there for another 50 years. I think you can't now really talk about the ocean without thinking about climate change and warming seas. Have How do you think dolphins are going to respond to, to that? Or have you started to see that already? We are concerned. What we've seen just from our own temperature monitoring during our sightings is that the winter temperatures are not getting to be as cold as they used to. Uh, we still have hot water during the summertime that sometimes spikes to temperatures above the dolphin's body temperature. And that is of concern to us. These animals are large mammals. They generate heat through the metabolic processes that we do. We have the opportunity to dump that heat to the environment 
by sweating, by convection with the air blowing the sweat off our bodies and cooling us down. The dolphins have one mechanism for dumping heat, and that is with a temperature differential. As long as the water is cooler than their body, then the heat will travel out of their bodies into the water around them. But once they get to being the same temperature or the waters that they're living in get to be warmer than body temperature, that puts a tremendous heat stress on these individuals. And we're concerned about what's going to happen once we get to that point. We also are concerned that these animals are going to be facing an environment that is going to be subjected to more and more severe red tides as time goes on, that they're going to be facing more pathogens over longer periods of time. And then hurricanes are forecast to become more severe as well, which will change the environment, which will change the pollution levels in the area. Looking at how complex this picture is, what do you think is the most important part of your work? I think the most important part is letting people have the ability to appreciate them for who they are as their neighbors in the coastal waters recognizing that these animals share the same waters we do. They swim through the same waters, they breathe the same air, they catch and eat the same fish. These animals are indicators of the health of the local ecosystem, and they're relying on things that we can sympathize with, we can empathize with in terms of their effects on the lives of the individuals. So helping people to appreciate the importance of the neighborhood that these animals swim through to the animals themselves and to us, and the fact that we need to share that is probably the most important contribution we can make for the local dolphins. On a, on a broader scale, the dolphins in Sarasota Bay have helped their brethren in other places in a number of ways. The dolphins in Sarasota Bay were not subjected to oil from the deep water horizon. It stayed about 80 some miles offshore. During the entire time of the flow, we were highly concerned about it coming into Sarasota Bay, but Currents and winds and storms were such that it did not come here. But that set the Sarasota dolphins up to be a reference population for comparisons with the dolphins up in the northern Gulf of Mexico that were impacted by the Deepwater Horizon. So working with the agencies I mentioned before, the National Marine Fisheries Service, the uh, Natural Resource Damage Assessment, and, and others, we engaged in comparative studies. And those comparative studies used the Sarasota dolphins for reference being able to look at the health differences between the dolphins in Sarasota Bay and the health of the dolphins up in the northern Gulf of Mexico, especially Barataria Bay and Mississippi Sound, pointed to specific differences that were indicative of the impacts of oil. And so being able to make these kinds of comparisons and demonstrate what are truly impacts from the Deepwater Horizon helped to lead towards settlement of that case with BP, as opposed to it being a long drawn out court case. I mean, that's an amazing testament to what conservation science can do, not, you know, not just in the scientific research world, but in these high-profile cases that we have, right? Absolutely. The, the value of long-term study never became more evident than it did when we needed reference data for being able to identify what's going on with these other populations. You talked about just cultivating this sense of appreciation for dolphins as our neighbors, and I think that's really a beautiful concept of being neighbors with animals. But 
how have you seen that appreciation translate to action i guess either on in a global sense or in on a local level where you work well at, at a policy level it led to a major change early on by identifying the fact that these animals are resident it led to the protocols for management by the national marine fishery service that identifies these stocks on a a geographic basis and deals with them individually, base system to base system where residents have been identified. On an individual level, there's it's a hard thing to evaluate in terms of how people's attitudes have changed. All we can do is, is look at the feedback that we get from people who talk about how appreciative they are of learning more about the animals and being able to recognize them as not just important components of the ecosystem, but as creatures that are trying to make a living in the same waters where they are. And when we can describe these animals as individuals and what they've gone through, it makes a difference. We have, for example, one lineage belonging to a, a female named Vespa. She has been seen quite often in the presence of anglers, whether they're on boats or on docks. And she engages in feeding behaviors that are not natural. She takes discarded fish from anglers. She's fed from anglers. Um, she'll occasionally take fish off a line. What we know from, these, from observing these animals when they're under human care as well as in the wild is that they learn by observation. And so we've been able to document through Vespa just how much her offspring have picked up these same kinds of unnatural and dangerous behaviors and how it's been passed on to the next generation after that and the next generation after that. So four generations of bad behaviors have been reinforced from occasionally getting fish from anglers. And this has not worked out well for the dolphins themselves. Most of them have uh, been injured as a result of this from entanglement or um, from boat propellers. And some of them have died from interactions as well, whether it's ingestion of fishing gear or entanglement in fishing gear. And so in Vespa's case, her entire lineage is one who engages in these kinds of behaviors. And so recognizing that we have these maternal lineages within Sarasota Bay, they have different patterns of behavior, different dolphinalities. Some of them work to the individual's advantage. Some of them work to the individual's disadvantage as they learn how to coexist with humans. When we can follow individuals over time and see how humans have impacted them, it makes a difference. From a, a broader perspective, I work with the Chicago Zoological Society, and we have the opportunity to help educate people in Chicago about the impacts they have on the Gulf of Mexico. The Chicago land area and surrounding areas are all part of the watershed that feeds into the Mississippi River, which feeds into the Gulf of Mexico. And so things that are done in the yards, in the fields, um, through the sewage systems up there, do impact dolphins that are more than a thousand miles away as the waters empty into the Gulf of Mexico and make their way around the Gulf of Mexico through the circulation patterns. Yeah, I mean, the illusion of separation, I guess, really is an illusion. Absolutely. And things like environmental contaminants, like some of these legacy contaminants, the PCBs, DDT, and that sort of thing that have been outlawed for decades. We find concentrations of these contaminants in our dolphins, even though they're not being produced anymore. And so we, we are connected. We're beginning to look at things like 
the phthalate compounds that are used in plasticizers and finding concentrations of those in the dolphins in Sarasota Bay as well. We're going to be looking more at microplastics in our dolphins. They are not immune to the things that, that are being talked about elsewhere around the world. Just because they're close to our home doesn't mean that they're protected necessarily. So understanding that what role our dolphins have within the global environment of dolphins, how they're impacted in the same ways as dolphins in other parts of the world, and being able to use the messages that come from these animals that we know so well, so we can share them with others to be aware of what's going on elsewhere and try to mitigate what's going on elsewhere is something that we take very seriously. You mentioned how well you know these animals. Does, does your work as I imagine the, the work is that you do as a researcher, as a scientist studying these animals, do those lines between feeling some kind of relational attachment to the dolphins or just do those lines get blurred? What does that look like for you? It, it's hard not to, to care about them as individuals when you've seen what's going on in their lives, when you sometimes have been involved in, in what's going on in their lives. We are conservation scientists, which means we look at the population level at what things impact populations and what can be done to try to benefit them at the population level. But we also work with these animals at the individual level. Because of our expertise in being able to conduct health assessments on these animals, we're called upon by the National Marine Fisheries Service to lead rescues. So when, when you've got your arms around an animal and you're removing the line from it and you're sending it off to be with its mother after getting the line off of it, it's hard not to care about that individual and really care about what happens to it over time. But, uh, you know, I'm still in touch with dolphins that I knew from the 70s and not in touch with as many of the people that I knew from the 70s. So there is that familiarity and keeping track of the lives of the individuals that makes them, makes so many of them special. Yeah, I mean... I guess you've sort of already answered this, but does anything still surprise you in after 50 years of, of going out and being with the dolphins? Oh, absolutely. They teach us new things all the time. For example, we um, went into this most recent red tide with a new acoustic monitoring system that's being developed by a colleague named David Mann. And this is a remote system that we can put on people's docks and it's solar powered. It records all the sounds from a hydrophone in the water just offshore, and it sends a sample of those sounds to the cloud. We are establishing a network of these listening stations around Sarasota Bay, and it's giving us a whole new appreciation for the biological life of the, of the bay, for being able to understand what goes on below the surface, where you can't see, but you can, you can hear. And so, for example, prior to the red tide, we had two operating listening stations. We now have 10 that are out there. But we were able to document a dramatic decline in the biological activity as a result of this. These listening stations pick up the invertebrate sounds like snapping shrimp. They pick up the fish sounds that we've talked about before. They pick up the dolphin sounds, including the whistles, and we're developing the ability to track dolphins from their signature whistle, whistles from one station to the next. And it also picks up boat noise so that we can also get an indication of the human activities in the vicinity of that particular listening station. So by building a network of these, we can get a much better indication of what's going on around the bay. That's kind of a beautiful concept. People are always talking about just 
how much you learn from just listening, no matter what context you're in. But in in your context, you literally are just listening to learn what's happening in that ecosystem. Well, it's, it's a great system. It's also citizen science because we have people around the bay who have homes on the water and they're excited about being able to contribute to the science that we're doing. So they let us put the stations up in their backyards and we can make the sounds available to them either through a speaker out on their dock or as their own little FM station. They can hear what's going on in the bay. That'd be really cool to just be driving along and change your radio station to recording recorded sound from the bottom of the bay, right? Or live sound is what it turns out to be. So that's pretty amazing. Live. That is amazing. Um, I guess I'll just kind of ask you one last question. Um, but, you know, you brought up again the red tide. And in the face of just this host of environmental pressures and crises, what do you hope for? What keeps me going are two things. We have interns that work with our program and we have graduate students that work with our program. And seeing these young people getting engaged, seeing how much they care is something that helps to motivate us to keep on going and doing what we're doing. And to see them developing the techniques that they can use in their own research. And oftentimes they take this back to other countries where they could increase the conservation capacity as well. So I'm, I have great hope for the, the next generation of researchers to be able to, to fight the good fight and make the changes that are, are needed. And I also get a sense from the stakeholder meetings that we have working locally that, that people want to be able to appreciate the dolphins, that once they learn more about them as their neighbors, they do care more. And that caring goes beyond just the dolphins, but it's about the whole ecosystem and what it takes in order to keep things going. So. I'm encouraged about increasing levels of caring. Um, certainly there's a lot more that needs to be done in terms of demonstrating change, but without people caring, you're not gonna see that change. So it's the first step. Well, Dr. Wells, thank you so much for, for sharing all that you have. It was my pleasure. Thank you for the great questions. When you hear people of any profession, and, and I think scientists are no different, you, you get a failing sometimes when people are really just doing a job, you know, no matter what the job is and no matter how they got started in it. But after 50 years of this, I don't get the impression that Dr. Wells is any less interested and committed. Yeah, it really is. I think that seeing how his research operates on the scientific plane, just looking at data and making assessments and monitoring how dolphins are adapting to their environment and just looking at their behaviors, that's one layer. Then there's the other layer of how personal that research can become when his team is involved in rescues, like he mentioned. And, uh, you know, like he told me, kayaking out into the bay and seeing dolphins that he has been watching since the 70s and that there's some people that he doesn't keep up with from the 70s anymore, but he's still in touch with these dolphins. I, I really love that idea. And just, you know, I think that's what being neighbors really means. I'm really glad that you said that because I think, yeah, it's nice to have kind of those uh, more emotional, passionate stories. Uh, but so often is the case, especially when it comes to conservation rights, and we talk about it a lot on this show, 
is kind of the disconnect between what's happening in the environment and what's happening on a policy change. And him talking about um, their research, uh, it's not just, hey, we're hanging out with dolphins all the time. The research that they're doing day in and day out leads to actual physical, tangible results, just like it did with um, trying to find a settlement with with BP and the Deepwater Horizon spill. Um, that, to me, is the legacy impact of of the work of somebody like Dr. Wells. Right. And and like Dr. Wells said that he thinks the even as important as the research is reaching the public with knowledge of these animals and how how they live and how humans can coexist better with them. So I think that just bringing stories like his and there's so many labs around the country around the world who are contributing really important knowledge and findings to conservation science and I think that just the more people who are aware, then the better we can all collectively face some of the biggest environmental issues that we see today. Absolutely. Uh, Janie Fugate, filmmaker, member of the Wildlands Collective and guest producer of today's episode. Thank you so much, Janie. We really appreciate you bringing this interview to us. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Eyes on Conservation podcast. If you'd like to hear this episode and others on Patreon, there you can find the extended interviews from all of our all of our shows. And for as little as a buck a show, you can have access to this content and your donations really matter to help us continue to produce these episodes and get this kind of content on wildlife related news and stories to bigger audiences.